If you have your Bible, open them up to a couple different passages today. Luke 24 is where we're going to start. Uh, we're going to spend a decent chunk of time in Jeremiah 36. So if you want to put a, a little note in Jeremiah 36, then we're going to bounce around in Exodus some, but we're going to start out in Exodus 17. So there's your kind of passages, Luke 24, Exodus 17, Jeremiah 36. Everything else will kind of be on the screen. We'll, we'll talk through that and, uh, and get going all of this. A couple weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago actually, I ended my sermon series on the Holy Spirit. And if you'll remember, my last sermon on the Holy Spirit was, was a, an attempt at being very practical. How do we welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives? How do we give him more control? And we said five key things that we want to do as, as a people, as individuals, as a church to give the Spirit more control. We want to submerse ourselves in Scripture. We want to pay attention to God better, learning to pay attention in the busyness of life. We want to invite the Spirit into our daily life. And then we talked about asking him, so asking what does he want us to do, asking him to participate with what we're doing, and then when we ask, obeying what he tells us. So scripture, pay attention, invite, ask, obey. Those are the, the five things. So for the rest of summer, what we're going to do leading up from now until school starts back, that's right, school's going to start back, and it'll be here before you know it. Sorry, guys. That's the worst thing to talk about, Philip. Um, we're going to take these five things and we're going to break it down and, and kind of talk about each one individually and specifically. So for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about Scripture. What does it mean to submerse ourselves in Scripture? Even more importantly, like what, what is the Bible and why do we trust it and why should we trust it? Uh, and then we're going to do a three-week series over paying attention and what that's like, slowing down in life, learning to attune ourselves better to what God's doing, paying attention. And then we'll do a sermon over inviting God in, asking God to participate with us, and then obeying God. And that's nine weeks, and that'll get us right back to the first Sunday in August, or the first Sunday when school starts back. So if you're interested in all that, there it is. That's what you have to look forward to this, this summer. But we're going to start out with Scripture, and I think Scripture is one of these things that in the modern church, compared to the secular society, we've created this pendulum swing where the world believes one thing, so we swing the pendulum back so far the other way that, that it sometimes leads us to do things that Scripture wasn't intended to do. And, and by that, I think, I, maybe I'm just weird, and that's, that's fair, I am, I get that, but I'm curious to see if there's anyone else out there that would like admit they're as weird as me. So when I was in seventh, eighth grade, uh, that was when I first really kind of I got saved when I was in seventh grade, first kind of started coming to faith and learning what, what all this was. And I would go to uh, different church camps with my youth group. We would go on mission trips. And part of our mission trips was every morning uh, we were expected to get up and do, our, our youth minister called it TOG, which stood for Time Alone with God. So you had to stand up, do some Time Alone with God every, every morning, or sit down, I guess. And I'll never forget, like, when I was supposed to do that, sitting outside, like, under a tree with my Bible open and then being like, okay, God, let the wind blow it to whatever verse you want me to read today. You just blow it open, and whatever is, that's what I'm going to read. That's your word for me today. And if you ever do stuff like that, anyone willing to, or am I just that weird? Like, two people, great. Join me in the weird club. We'll have a good time together. For the rest of you, Cool, I guess. I don't know. That's just how my brain thought. Like, or, or maybe not that mystical, but you'll do the, okay, God, what do you have for me today? And you just like open your Bible. Like, that's what I'm going to read today. 
And that's fine. I'm not trying to like downplay that by any means. But where does that idea come from? What, what is it that inspires that thought on the Bible as if the Bible is some like mystically divine source that if it just opens to the right page, it's going to change your life forever? And I think that derives out of some well-intended but often misinterpreted teachings that we as the church tend to peddle. So what I'm going to do over the next three weeks is I'm going to see if I can hold these things together in a really interesting way and really just show you where the Bible came from and why I fully believe and why we as a church fully believe it's reliable, it's true, and we can read it because God has given it to us as a gift. But to do that, we got to talk about what this spectrum looks like. So in our modern world today, we kind of have this spectrum where on one side, this is that first slide, Kelsey, on that one side is like the modern, skeptic, secular opinion of the Bible. Uh, these, these are your friends that are atheist or agnostic. They don't believe in what Scripture says, so they're going to kind of stand over here. And then over here on the other side, you have what I'm going to call your like fundamental blind belief. We have both of these approaches to Scripture in our world. And whether you know it or not, your friends probably that aren't Christians are going to side on this modern skeptic. And so this is the idea that, this is if you turn the History Channel on at 3 in the morning and they're doing like a documentary on the Bible, don't watch it. It's not good. But this is like the type of stuff History Channel is going to say. They're going to say stuff like, you know, the, the Bible is like really just like conspiracy of power. So by the time Constantine came to the Roman Empire as leader of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was starting to falter, and they needed a way to regarner authority. So Constantine made Christianity the official religion, and he approved this Bible as like the sacred text that everyone would have to follow. And so really what the Bible is, is it's like this agenda-driven control, and you can't even really trust the translations because they're inconsistent. It's just a human book produced by humans. Have you guys heard friends talk about the Bible like this? That's what the world tends to think of it. Then on the other side, you have your, if you grew up in church, your kind of fundamental blind belief. The idea that really what the Bible is, is they're like golden tablets that fell from heaven into like the hands of Moses. Or that, that God struck Moses with a lightning bolt and Moses' eyes rolled back in his head. And he had this like Holy Spirit trance for like two years and he was just writing. And then he came to and he was like, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Man, this is really good. I should contact Zondervan publishing and get this published. And that was like Moses' experience with writing the Bible. Or, or that it's some theological encyclopedia that really what you're supposed to do is in the back of your Bible, you'll have like a where to turn to talk about marriage or where to turn when you're feeling sad. And so the Bible's there so you can cherry pick some verses and helps you out in certain situations. And that's great and wonderful until people cherry pick the verses that you don't like out and use that against you. And <sighs> welcome to the modern debates on what is the Bible. And I think sometimes the tendency is to say, well, if that's the spectrum, Philip, where should we be? You know, should we be kind of leaning towards the fundamental biblical belief with a little bit of our hand in the modern skeptic view? And I would say to that, neither of these options are what God intended. Instead, it is a both and option. So I, I put a coin in my pocket this morning, and now I can't remember if it's still there or if I lost it. But think of it like a coin. I lost it, so it's not there anymore. That's okay. Think of it like, like a quarter, right? On one side, you have the humanness of the text. 
And on the other side, you have the pure divinity of the text. And the Bible is neither merely human nor mystically divine. It is both the inspired word of God, meaning it is divine. It is profitable for teaching and correcting and transforming our minds, 2 Timothy 3.16. And, and it is the product of writing within human contexts and human situations, meaning that we can trace back its origins that we can go back through history and through research and archaeology and study. We can uncover things that show this king really did exist and this is a real historical reality that happened. And so over the next three weeks, this is what we're diving into. What is the Bible? How did we get it? And why do we read and trust this book? And I think historically, when we as the church ask that question, the, the answer we typically give is we run quickly to 2 Timothy 3.16, a great passage, right? All scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God. Uh, it is literally God-breathed in the Greek, and it's profitable for teaching and rebuke and correcting and all, all of this stuff. And that's awesome. I absolutely affirm that. The only issue when we take that and we make that our purpose is what do Mormons believe about the Book of Mormon? Say that it's divine, God's inspired word directly from God. And what do uh, Muslims say about the Quran? And what do Hindu people say about the Bhagavad Gita? That's the, the, Hindu sacred, the Hindu sacred text. They're all going to claim the same thing, that it is authoritatively divine. And you'll say, why do you believe that? And they'll say, because the text tells us that it is. So what I guess I'm asking is, can we as Bible-following Christians do more than just make our circular argument and move on? Wrote a whole sermon about it, so I hope so dive into this. So today we're going to do Old Testament and talk about why we rely on the Old Testament. That's part of what I was doing up here. Next week we'll talk New Testament and then on the third week we'll kind of tie it all in together and make it all make sense to us. So all that to say, again, I've been kind of in this mode over the summer. This is going to be kind of that lecture sermon hybrid where I'm going to just fire hose information at you and I trust your intelligence. I trust that you can pick up what I put down. By the way, all of this is taken from Scripture itself. I'm not just drawing this out of like scholars. This is from what Scripture says about itself. And then at the end, I'll wrap everything up into what I hope to be kind of a practical package, which allows us to garner a deeper trust and love for this thing we call the Bible. So let's start there. The Bible. Did you know that in the most literal of sense, the word Bible is an unbiblical word? Like, I don't mean that to say it's bad. I just mean that to say you can do a word search through the Bible, and guess what word you will never find? Bible. It's not in there. The Bible is later added. It's Latin for biblios. It means book. The, the Bible is not, the words the Bible is not in the Bible. Instead, what we're talking about when we talk about this book is not a singular book, but we're talking about a library of books. It has multiple different authors written over the span of 1,500 years, 66 different books, and right down, not really the middle of it, but kind of the three-quarters mark into the last quarter, we have this giant divider that we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that divider makes sense because standing right in the middle of that divider is the cross. There's a, a language shift from Hebrew and Aramaic to Greek. Uh, there, there's a 400-year gap of a change in culture and all this other stuff that's going on within that. But even so, all of this is God's word, and it is all a library of separate works written at separate times by different people to different people. This is what we talk about when we talk about the, quote, Bible. 
And so by the time we get to the New Testament, and by the time that's being written, the Old Testament is already universally accepted as an authoritative scripture from the Hebrews. They all agree that the Old Testament is exactly what we have today. So how do we know that? Or why do we read the Old Testament? Let's start in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, Jesus has just resurrected. He's getting ready to to give his final command before he leaves his disciples. And so he's talking to them. He's shown them that he's risen again. He's asked them for food. They give him food. And as they're sitting down eating in verse 44, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses The prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. So why do we read and trust the Old Testament? And we could go in and make a bunch of different arguments, but I think the easiest and most direct argument to make for why we read and trust the Old Testament is simply this. Jesus read and trusted the Old Testament. We read and trust the Old Testament because Jesus read and trusted the Old Testament. Now, if you're reading Luke 24, 44, and you don't really know much about the Hebrew Scripture, the Hebrew Bible, and how they organize it, you might miss this. But when Jesus says, don't you know that what you've read in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, this is a historical way of reading the Old Testament in the Hebrew thought and mind. So we got to go in and talk about how the Old Testament in Hebrew thought was broken up. So it's broken up in three parts. They use an acronym called Tanakh, where the T, the N, and the K all stand for a different word. So I got a little chart for you so you can kind of see this. T stands for Torah. You guys have probably heard the word Torah if you've been in church before. It's the Hebrew word for law. N stands for Nevaim, which is the Hebrew word for prophets, and K stands for Ketuvim, which is the Hebrew word for writings. So this is why when I sat down here and we were going through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and all of a sudden judges in the Hebrew Bible doesn't put Ruth next. It puts it at the end because they're divided up differently. Modern Old Testament, we have four parts. We do what's called the Pentateuch. That's the first five. Then we do the history books. Then we do the wisdom literature. Then we do the prophets. In the Old Testament, by the Hebrew way, by the way Jesus would have read it, it would have been broken up like this. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. So, when Jesus says, don't you know what was written to me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, which is the first book that's the head of the writing, so that was to represent all of the writings, what Jesus is saying is every single word in the Old Testament has led up to me, that Jesus read and believed and trusted in the authority of the Old Testament, so then we can too. So the question is, how did we get each of these three sections? How did we get the Torah? How did we get the Ketuvim? And how did we get the Nevaim? This is what we're going to talk about. I do not have enough time to go into super detail. There are people that they have, man, they have just poured their lives into this study. They have doctorates. They're more, way, I'm about to say they're more smarter than I could ever be, which that makes that point pretty clear. They're way smarter than I could ever hope to be, and I cannot touch this with what they've done. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to take just short sections from each of these books or each of these kind of works together and then talk about how that came to be and use that as an overall statement for how the rest of the part came to be. How do we get the Torah? How do we get the Ketuvim? How do we get the Nevaim? This is what we'll talk through. Start off with the Torah. All right. So when you read the New Testament, almost always, over and over again, sometimes Paul will just mention the law, but it's usually in the New Testament referenced as the law of Moses. 
right? So even in the New Testament, it attributes the Torah to a guy named Moses. We know about Moses. We read all about him in the Torah. Now, that means something significant, and it yet does not mean other things. Sometimes we take that as God, like I said, zapped Moses with a lightning bolt. He came to after like two years of writing and behold the Torah. And to believe that misunderstands the way we interpret and receive the Torah. So let's start in Exodus 17. Moses is the first documented prophet, and by prophet I mean a man who speaks on behalf of God to the people. That's what Moses is. Moses is the first documented prophet to write on behalf of God a recorded story in Scripture. So in Exodus 17, this is the story of the battle with the Amalekites. Uh, Egypt, or Egypt has just lost Israel. Israel fleed. They got away, and now they're a nomadic people group traveling through the wilderness. This means they are very susceptible. They don't have an army. They don't have borders. They don't have the resources to fight back. The Amalekites see this. They decide it's a great chance to take advantage, and they start attacking the Hebrews as they're walking around. So they form up a kind of band of men to go and fight back, and Moses goes up on a hillside next to this battle, and he prays over the battle. And you guys know this story because when Moses' hands are up in the air, what happens? The Israelites are winning, and as his hands fall, the Israelites lose. And, and so he, he has his buddy Joshua come, or Aaron come, and helps him to hold his arms up. This is the story in Exodus 17. The way the story goes is they get him hold his arms up. He holds up. He prays. Israel is victorious. And after the battle is won, in Exodus 17, verse 14, the Bible says this. The Lord then said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. So how did we get the story of Exodus 17? It's not that Moses is really old and he's really bored and he's like, I should probably write my memoirs down so that the next guy remembers this stuff. It's not that Moses is struck into a Holy Spirit trance. It's not that golden tablets fell out of heaven. Moses encountered God's presence in action and in a, in a divine event. And then God tells Moses to record that event for the sake of memory. If you jump over a couple of other chapters to Exodus 24, a similar thing's going to happen when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and God gives Moses the commands of the covenant. Moses comes back down, and I'm giving a very abbreviated version here, but he comes back down, and the first thing he does is he tells the people audibly, these are the commands of the covenant. And the people respond, we will do those commands, which is hilarious because they don't, but we will do those commands, then Moses goes and writes them down. So does Moses have a mystical experience on the mountain? Well, yes, but is that where the writings come from? No, the writings come after all of this has transpired. This is in Exodus 24. Now, I will say, just full disclosure, this doesn't account for some of the more humanless stories of the Bible. And by humanless, I mean like days one through five of creation. Who's around to document that? It's not like one person was like standing back watching as God. There has to be some sort of divine revelation for that. Job chapter one tells us this story of Satan entering the courts of God. It's not like a person was around to see that. So in order for that to be written, God had to give some sort of divine inspiration. That is there. I'm giving credit to that absolutely. But the general method of how we got the Torah is this. A significant event happens. God tells someone after they experience God in this significant event to record down what happened. That record gets stored on a scroll, usually in the tabernacle. And then some scribes and editors are going to come back together and compile these various scrolls into a unified document. Now that might sound kind of scandalous to you. Wait a minute, Philip, that doesn't, that's not the way I think of it. 
And I would just say, it's okay, take a deep breath, We're, we're all right. Because when we understand it this way, this actually brings some commonly criticized texts to actually make a lot of sense. So if you read passages like Numbers 12, verse 3, this is where it comes in, and it says, Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Now if Moses wrote that, it's a little self-defeating, right? Behold, I am the most humble man on the planet. No one. That seems kind of counterintuitive to the text. And what makes more sense is if someone, a scribe, is knitting together these documents and they see, man, we miss having a leader like Moses. There has not been anyone more humble than Moses since Moses was in. It makes sense as a scribal note that gets inserted in as a divinely inspired part of Scripture. Or you get to Deuteronomy 34 where we get the story of how Moses dies and where he's buried. And then in verses 10 and 11 of Deuteronomy 34, it tells us no prophet had arisen in Israel again like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. That's a text that derives from someone that's looking back over Israel's history and is saying, if only we had another Moses again. Which leads us to want to look forward and say, well, does someone come like Moses or better than Moses? Guess what the book of Hebrews is all about? That's what David preached about last week. This is what Jesus means in Luke 24 when he says everything in the Tanakh, in the Torah, and in the prophets, and in the writings, it all points to me. From the things Moses directly wrote to the scribal edits as putting this all into one unified document. This also explains other similar patterns in passages like Numbers 21:14, which is going to say, as was written in the, quote, book of the Lord's wars, or the scroll of the Lord's wars, and we're like, what's the scroll of the Lord's wars? I don't know about you, but I don't have that in my Bible. Well, it makes sense. It's a text that they had. They worked that into the book of Numbers. This is how we get our Torah. Now, if you're saying, that just seems weird to me, Philip, I, I don't know about that. Take a deep breath. It's not. The Bible's not trying to hide this. It's not trying to sweep it under the rug. It clearly presents itself in this way. In fact, we could take you to, or I'll take you to, in one of the major writings of the Ketuvim, the writings, the book of Proverbs. So, if you go to the book of Proverbs, this is second on the list. The book of Proverbs starts off in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, who wrote Proverbs. Solomon, it says so right there. Solomon wrote Proverbs. It's not scandalous. It's very true. We believe that absolutely to this day. Solomon wrote Proverbs. But if you then jump to chapter 25 of Proverbs, Kelsey, I think I have another slide for this one. To verse 25 of Proverbs, it's going to say, these two are the Proverbs of Solomon. And then it adds a little addition, which the men of King Hezekiah of Judah copied. So who wrote Proverbs 25? Solomon, but who edited them together? The men of King Hezekiah. We, Israel kept immaculate historic records of kings. We can go back and do some math. Do you know the gap between Solomon and Hezekiah? It's about a 200-year gap. It means 200 years after there's been this book of Proverbs kind of circulating around, King Hezekiah and his men uncover some more Proverbs from Solomon, and they decide that they're going to edit all of these together into a new version of Proverbs. Not to replace the old, but to say, here's some extra stuff that Solomon says. Who wrote Proverbs? King Solomon. Edited together 200 years after King Solomon wrote Proverbs. This isn't scandalous. 
This isn't something that we're trying to hide from you as the church. We don't want people to know this because they might not think the Bible's divine. No, the Bible's absolutely fully divine and it's fully human. Scripture is both God's divine word while carrying with it human origins. God is perfectly comfortable saying, here are some sayings directly from the pen of Solomon, and here are some sayings from the pen of Solomon compiled together some 200 years later. The divinity does not pull away from the humanity, and the humanity does not pull away from the divinity. So let's go to the final one, the Nevi'im, the prophets. Surely, if there was someone in the Bible to get like Holy Spirit zapped and right, it would be a prophet. I mean, that's their whole job, to have like visions from God. So this would likely be, when you go read the prophets, you just find that's not how it came to be. So let's talk about the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 36 tells us the story of how we got the book of Jeremiah. Bear with me, this is the last point, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap this all together. We need to start in Jeremiah 1, though. Jeremiah 1 gives us this little note that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So 13th year of Josiah. Then when you get all the way to chapter 36, it's going to say, in the fourth year of Joachim, Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, the word came to Jeremiah. So again, we can do some Israeli math and figure out how many, how many years is it from the 13th year of Josiah to the fourth year of Jehoiakim. You find it's about 25 years. Hold on to that. Let's, let's read a little bit right here. Chapter 36, verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and the nations from the time I first spoke to you during Josiah's reign until today. So what is God's command to Jeremiah? Hey, Jeremiah. Everything that you've taught for the last 25 years, every sermon you've preached, every political like protest poem you've written against the wayward kings, go ahead and take that and write it all down into one document. And you know this, but I'll just remind you, it's not like Jeremiah has a flash drive with all of his previous sermons on them. And even if he did, like, every time I know for me, and I've only been in ministry for like 10 years now, if I go back and read a sermon I preached like three years ago, I'm like, who let me preach this? I don't want to write this back down. I don't want anyone else to be aware that this came out, right? And God tells Jeremiah, hey, the last 25 years, everything you've preached, write it down. Go put it on a scroll. So what does Jeremiah do? Well, verse 4, he goes in and he hires Baruch, son of Neriah. So Jeremiah summoned Baruch, son of Neriah. At Jeremiah's dictation, Baruch wrote on a scroll all the words the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah. Then Jeremiah commanded, uh, commanded Baruch, I am restricted. I cannot enter the temple of the Lord, so you must go and read from the scroll. So Jeremiah, this is a very human thing. He goes and he hires a scribe, and he says, God's told me to write all these sermons down over the last 25 years. I'm going to talk. You're going to write. And we're just going to get this done. They do this for however long it takes to write it all. Jeremiah has been kicked out of the temple because it turns out when you're protesting the king, the king's like, I don't want you anywhere near me. So he gets kicked out of the temple. So Jeremiah says, Baruch, you got to take this to the temple and you got to start reading it out loud in the temple. Baruch goes in. I'm, again, condensing a story. We'll pick back up here in a little bit. But in verse 9, some of the scribes catch wind of Baruch's message. They report this to the king. The king has the message brought to him. And then we get to verse 21. 
in verse 21, it tells us, the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took from it and read it, hearing the king and all of the officials who were standing by the king. And since it was the ninth month, the king was sitting in his winter quarters with a fire burning in front of him. And as soon as Jehudi would read three or four columns, Jehoiakim would cut the scroll with the scribe's knife and throw it into the columns, or throw the columns into the fire in the hearth until the entire scroll was consumed by the fire in the hearth. What does the king do with this scroll that they have spent who knows how long working on? He burns it. So how do we have the book of Jeremiah? The king burnt Jeremiah. How how do we have it? Well, verse 27. After the king had burned the scroll and the words of Baruch had written in Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and once again, write on it the original words that were on the original scroll that King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned. And you are to proclaim concerning King Jehoiakim of Judah, this is what the Lord says. So they, God says, do it over again. They do it over again. And then you want to get kind of confused a little bit more. If you go to verse 32, him and Baruch set back down. Jeremiah takes another scroll and he gives it to Baruch, son of Neriah, the scribe, and he wrote on it at Jeremiah's dictation all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, Judah's king, had burned in the fire. And then notice this final phrase. It's really interesting. And many other words like them were added. And I know this, but when you're reading the book of Jeremiah, guess what? You're reading Jeremiah's second edition. They updated it. They gave a little bit more than what they gave in the first one. That's not scandalous. That's not like, oh no, we lost the first one. We can't trust it anymore. Absolutely, you can trust it. God's in control of all of this. But it is a very human document that comes out of a very human situation. The Bible is both divine and human. It is absolutely comfortable declaring, thus says the word of God Almighty, and saying, well, the first copy got burnt, so God told us to write another copy. It's secure in its claim to be God-inspired, and it's secure to have editorial notes added in 200 years after the original writing. So how are you doing? There's, there's just your multitude of information. Let me see if I can land the plane here and wrap this all up. Here's my point in all of this. It's not just to give you a college lecture about the Bible. I want you to understand that because I think it's important to know as Christians in the modern world when skeptics are going to be hypercritical against what we believe to be the text of God. We need to understand it and know how it was written, and that's important. But my whole point I want you to understand is this. The Bible is both a product, the Bible is a product of God's divine word given through human origins. The Bible is a product of God's divine word given through human origins. It is both divine and both human. If that seems weird to you, you should already know that we have a category for this because who was Jesus? Fully God, fully man, divine and human. The Bible matches up with what it's been teaching us all along. And because of this, we have some implications that we can draw out from it. Some things that we can use to to really press in against this and see if it's real or not. Number one, we can hold the Bible to human tactics. What I mean by that is we can hold the Bible to criticisms. We can hold it to history. We can hold it up and see, does this thing prove true? I'm not always one to just argue apologetics, but like, for example, the the Mormon documents uh, teach that Jesus came over to America and that there was a subsect of Jews that had sailed to it. There is nothing historical about that. You cannot prove that. 
But if you go to the Bible, we can find some really cool stuff. So in the 1990s, there was an archaeological dig in Jerusalem that they found this this seal. So a seal was like a thing of wax where, you know, you didn't have a signature that you signed on a check. You would seal your scroll, and you would put some words in it and then put your thumbprint on it. This is a seal that was uncovered. Some archaeologists have went and looked this up. They've translated it, and it says, the seal of Baruch, son of Neriah. That's cool, man. Because this is telling us that what happened with Jeremiah was not just like made up, that Baruch actually existed. And if he's a scribe, his whole occupation is just to do this all day long, write something down, seal it with my thing, here's my implement. It makes sense that they uncovered this. We found other stuff that is like uh, stuff referencing the house of David. It's historical. It's real. You can hold it to that standard and the Bible will hold up because it is both divine and human. It matches together perfectly. Number two, it implies that understanding the Bible is going to take a lifetime of study. Like, please understand, the Bible is ancient literature from across the globe. That means, I don't know how many of you guys have friends that aren't believers, but I would just go ahead and weigh in that your non-believing friends do not participate in reading ancient literature from across the globe on like a daily basis. That's weird. But we do it as Christians And that means to read the Bible for all it's worth. It's going to take some legwork. It's going to take meditation. It's going to take time. It's going to take community and correction. And it's going to take your entire life to understand this. Number three, it's a reminder that God's plan cannot be stopped. That all throughout the Bible we find the Amalekites and King Jehoiakim and Herod and Nero and you name it trying to stop what God is doing. And over and over again God prevails and his word shines through that God is faithful to declare it. And time and time again how does God declare his word? Through humanity. He uses humans to declare his word. And this leads me to my main point of all of this, the fourth implication. The Bible is evidence that God wants to do divine things through humans. God is not interested in zapping any of you into a Holy Spirit trance so that you become a robot Christian and then you just go off and do things like being a missionary. That's not what God's going to do. God wants to work through your humanity to do divine things. God wants to do divine things through humans. And how is he going to do that? Well, first and foremost, he does that through the fully divine, fully human person himself, Jesus. The one that said, all of these scriptures point to me. So that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians verse 50, or chapter 15, verse 3, For I pass on to you what was most important that I also received, that Christ died for our sins, what? According to Scriptures, that's the Old Testament. This was planned all along, according to the Old Testament, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, again, according to the Old Testament, according to Scripture. And when you understand that and you give your flawed humanness over to him in faith, God can and will forgive and restore you. He will take your faith and obedience and do divine things through it. Because every story in this book, every character, every line, every command stands as a testament to that. See, God's desire for First Baptist is not that we be a really entertaining church on Sunday mornings. His desire is that the divine kingdom of heaven would infiltrate Portalis through faithful obedience of First Baptist Church. This happens when we submerse ourselves in Scripture, not to gain some mystically divine word for our lives through letting the wind blow the Bible open to a certain page, 
but through knowing the stories. Knowing the story of Moses and Aaron winning the victory because God's power to persevere his plan through Israel. And knowing of Jeremiah and Baruch setting down to rewrite the scroll a second time to tell of God's desire for faithfulness to him. Of Hezekiah's men compiling to 200-year-old document from Solomon to recall the wise sayings of the wisest man. And through knowing that story, through trusting it and obeying its command and living according to its truth, God wants to continue that story. In a totally different culture, thousands of years later, on the other side of the globe, God wants to continue the same story through you. He wants to continue the same story through you, the same combination of human and divine. So I say all this to say, we read this Bible not just because we're like, well, the Bible says it's the divine inspired word of God, so we read it. We read the Bible because we can see the change it makes in human lives that believe in it, that it rewrites who we are and why we exist, that it gives us purpose and it gives us desires and it re-inspires us to go and live in the story God's permitted us to live in through what he's done through Christ Jesus. And the invitation is extended to you that you can also have God do divine things through you in your workplace and in your family just because he wants to do divine things through humans. The more you know the Bible, the more you see that reality take place in your own life. So we're going to have a time as we wrap up today where maybe you just want to say, God, I need that. I need you to do some divine things right now. I am powerless and I want to come submit. You can come pray. Uh, Mike's going to be up here. He would love to pray with you about that. Maybe you're saying, I just need to get back into this text. I mean, I never realized about this. I, I should read it more. I need to know these stories. I don't know if you want to sit down and read the Old Testament right now. Do it. Go for it. Be my guest. Uh, my challenge would be like Leviticus might be kind of hard, but, you know, read what you want to read, I guess. But the goal of all of this in the next three weeks is to say we believe Scripture because it is both the divine inspiration of God produced through mere humanity, and it has written a book like nothing else has ever been written and we believe it to be absolutely true. This is your chance to think about that and do as God would call you. Father God, we're grateful for what you have commanded us and declared to us to be true. And God, we pray this morning that we would develop a new love for your word, that we would desire it and love it all the more. And God, that you would learn to speak through it to us, that we might just grow as a church and as a people that know and love you. God, thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray.